and, and in a lot of ways he was a hard ass but the other side of it is, is that if you look at the work that I'm producing now and the work that my daughter's producing it's directly related to the and integrated into the process that came from his work it's not knockoff because we don't do any mass production and we won't copy his work but it, the influence on that is definitely clearly there that was jeweler and metal artist Danny Macchiarini. I'm Jeff, and this is Storied San Francisco. Every week on this podcast, you'll hear from artists, community leaders, writers, and San Franciscans from all walks of life, telling stories, sharing personal histories, and trying to put into words what makes this city so special. Before we dive into the podcast today, we wanted to let you know about a pretty cool event this weekend. On Sunday night, friends of the show Bitch Talk Podcast are hosting a comedy night at Cobbs called Really Funny Comedians Who Happen to Be Women. Go to CobbsComedyClub.com for more info. Welcome to episode 40, part two. In part one, Danny shared the story of his Italian grandfather and his dad, Peter. He talked about Peter's involvement with the San Francisco Bohemians of the 1930s, and he ended with Peter's rediscovery of Emperor Norton, who became a symbol of openness and progress for the city. In this podcast, Danny continues the story of the resurrection of Norton's reputation. He goes on to talk about growing up in the Excelsior, the Vietnam War, his evolution as an artist, and his dad's influence on his art. Here's Danny. So we actually patinaed him silver because it was oh, a Comstock wow. saloon. And he sits there on top. That's the maquette that they made yeah. for it. All right, that's And that is the only statue of the public statue of the Emperor Norton in San Francisco. And that is a crime. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. And they named the bridge after him and everything else. And, yes, they should. And he also, uh, the other thing that, that was really cool is that is the Emperor Norton printed his own money. Mm-hmm. And merchants took it, but people don't know why that merchants took it. It wasn't just out of altruism; part of it was that. But there was no EPA, there was no uh, regulatory agencies, there were very few police that were not corrupt. So when you got onto a coach to ride a coach, you weren't, you didn't know if the coach driver was drunk or not. That hey, how many accidents he'd been in, how have you? But if the emperor, if there was an emperor's note displayed in a window, you knew that the emperor had written on that coach, and that coach was was not going to get into an accident and kill you, or run somebody down. Yeah. If you went to a bazaar to buy food like meats, right? You knew that you were really buying chicken and steak and not rat, which was also sold by 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 corrupt people in this town, right? Mm-hmm. And when you went to the baker, you knew that it was fresh bread. bread. So it was not a matter of, completely a matter of altruism. It was practical. It was very practical. Yeah. But there's also another San Francisco story that we get from Emperor Norton, if you want it. Absolutely. Okay, so the two dogs, which have been confused as being the Emperor's dogs, they were not the Emperor's dogs. Buster fact, and Lazarus. Bummer and Lazarus. Bummer. Sorry. But they figured out that by hanging out with the Emperor and going to all these bazaars, that, that when the butcher cut off, cut off a piece of steak for the emperor and cut off the cut off the um the fat on the side and threw it to the dogs that it was a good living same with a baker when they went by to get bread cut off the heels 
threw it to the dog. Any of the food, so the dog's, hey, this is pretty good, man. We're going to hang out with the emperor. But he went on these long, long sojourns. I mean, he was serious about his job. I mean, he, he would go to all of these all of these bazaars, and this was the Barbary Coast, and he would take his job very seriously, and that's why the, the supervisors kept him in uniform. They paid for his uniform all along the way because he did his job really well. So one day, you know, Lazarus was a younger dog, and he could stay up with this entourage after three, four, five hours, right, along the waterfront. Uh, um, but Bummer was the older one, right? And so they came to one of the last bazaars uh, that was there. I, was a, I can't remember if it was a butcher or a baker or something. I assume it was a baker. But anyway, he came to get his bread, and, and the baker cut off the heels, and threw it to Lazarus, and it got his emperor a note, and he said, oh, now I can make some money. Uh, after the, the entourage left, about three or four minutes later, here comes Bummer. Old Bummer, couldn't stay up. He looks up forlornly up into the eyes of the baker, and the baker looks down and goes, you too? Oh, what a bummer. There and that's go. where we get it. So, in 1953, I was born okay. up on Union Street around the corner. Okay. But this was the time of the first migration of Italians out of this neighborhood to other places. Now they're all in Redwood City. Now they're all in Redwood City. But this is the first move was out to the Excelsior in San Francisco. Okay. So my parents moved out there when I was a few months old. But I always, uh, I half grew up in North Beach because on Saturdays, my father would come here and I would go to the shop with him, right? So, well, where we moved was an amazing neighborhood, too, at the time. Five blocks from where I grew up, Jerry Garcia grew up. Oh. All right. So, and it was a very interesting time out there when, when I was growing up because it was the Vietnam War period, and we were all... That whole neighborhood uh, was was divided very hard, again right and left, about the war, and and all of the, the our generations, all of the heads or the or what's called the hippies now, were on one side, and then all the straight folks were on the other side. Wait, they were called hippies were called heads. Yeah, I never heard that. Yeah. Skipping over that, anyway. Well, it's long hairs, hairs, heads, God. right? That's where it comes from. They, they have this derogatory, but sure. but you know, we we consider ourselves, you know, we weren't straight. We were we were hip. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'll give you one story. My friend, my friend Jerry Gar- uh, Jerry Chercott, uh, at the time. To line, to, you'd have to line up to get all of the new. There was one record store in, in, in Excelsior. Mm-hmm. It was on Mission Street, down near the Granada Theater, right? And you'd have to line up when a new album came out. So a new Rolling Stones album came out, or a new Beatles album came out, or a new Who's album, whatever. We'd have to line up and wait for them to open the doors, and everybody would be in line for the new Beatles album. So one day, I couldn't make it to when when the new uh, Beatles album came out. Which one would that have been? Uh, this was the one. Uh, you get to it in a minute. Okay, sorry. This was the one. I think it's the White Album. I'm not sure, but anyway, it was the one where where. Um, 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 Anyway, I, I, I couldn't get there. I said, Jerry, did you get the new album? He said, yeah, I got it on now. So I went up to his house. I called him, right? So I go up to his house. It's two or three blocks away. And out of his, he lived in the basement, of course. And he had built, this guy was amazing. He had built this amazing tube amp. I mean, really 
tube amp of his own design. He'd saved all his money. He had a Guild guitar. He would he could play amazing stuff. And he and this thing would like basically be worthy of being, you know, broadcasting uh, at Candlestick Park. This thing could kick ass. So he had the garage door open, and out of the garage door was the new Beatle album. And and a new Beatle album, the song on it was, I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in and stops my mind from wandering. So I go down to the garage, I walk down to the garage, I'm like, Jerry, where are you, where are you, Jerry? And all of a sudden, I look up, and Jerry goes, I'm up here. I said, he's up on the, on the roof, right? <laughs> I said, Jerry, what are you doing up there, God damn it? He goes, I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets stoned on acid, right? <laughs> so I have one more story about my high school, when I got to high school. So when I got to high school, they were prepping us to go to the Vietnam War, absolutely. Uh, so everybody formed what we called F Troop. And we refused to do any exercise. We refused to do any athletic activity. And at first, the F Troop was really small. But I also was a championship swimmer. So in my first year as a freshman in high school, I got my block B, Balboa, right? And that's something you usually couldn't get until you were in your third year at a varsity, you know, what have you. So I had my block B and what have you. And in a junior year, I joined the F troop. And a lot of, uh, because what happened was we could see, they actually put pictures of some of the guys who were killed that we knew who, uh, in the neighborhood up on the wall, like here's the heroes. And we looked up there and I said, you know, Jerry, I don't want to be a hero. I just want to grow up. I want to live. And so we formed F Troop. So it began like with only a few students who were like, nah, we're not going to do that anymore, man. You do, you do PE. We're not going to do PE, right? It was only like a 10. By the time I was a senior and I graduated, there were 400 sitting in the bleachers refusing to do any physical physical exercise. What did the F stand for? What? What did the F stand for? F troop. Uh, Fluck. Okay. And we were proud of the Fs that we got in PE. I actually had an A minus average in high school, um, even with the Fs. Mm. Wow. <laughs> Okay, but anyway, that's a, so, um, but all during the summer when I was in, uh, as a teenager and when I was, I started when I was nine, so like my first project is up there, those cats, mm -hmm. that's the cat family when I was six years old, and uh, that's 1960, right, mm -hmm. uh, 59, and I, he, my father taught me how to solder, and then the little more sophisticated cat is when I was nine years old, okay, my mother saved those. Next to them is a set of skinny pennies mm -hmm. that my daughter made when she was six years old. Awesome. And that abstract piece on the end there, that's my granddaughter's work, okay? Wow. So you guys, yeah, it's like a timeline. She, she was there. four when she did that. We're teaching her how to solder now. That's awesome. <laughs> we'll get to All right. So that's kind of a progression of how I... Um, uh, uh, developed in, and there's a picture of me soldering together and when I age nine I made this Tyrannosaurus Rex that I just have in the other room you can come look at it with me picture of me soldering it okay so sculpture was your dad's thing but he also knew how to solder and taught you well he knew to solder and weld and what and and to put together he taught me how to put to take a, a line drawing and turn it into a sculptural piece right. And had to, and to play with fire in a positive way, 
which was totally cool. I loved it. You know, I fell in love with playing with fire. Um, so, I mean, that's how I began my artistic journey. Okay. Uh, began it with him. In fact, one of the first masks I made as a teenager, those are all my, that's my wall. That first mask on the right there was one of the ones I made when I was 13, mm -hmm. okay? That one over there is Rasta Man. I made that like 10 years ago. <laughs> and the monkey, there's a story about the monkey if you want to hear the story. That's an amazing story. Uh, my father and I did these modernist masks. My father was really into modernism and modernist masks. And then they had a Picasso-esque feel to them. Um, Nella, would you pull out that mask that's in there? So let them look at it. So we got several orders like to do these masks in pendant size that people could wear, which are basically they're wearable sculptures. And you can see some of them over here, but we have one you can actually take a picture of up, up close over here. So I, I, at, the, at the end of his life, I was working with him. Like, this is in like the late 90s, right? I was working on a mask, and all of a sudden one day, these pieces that I had hammered out, they fell together. And it came out to be that monkey up there. And more like a gorilla. Like a gorilla in the mist. Right? It's over here. This one right here came together. Oh, wow. Like in 20 minutes, that thing came, came, came together, right? Cool. So, usually, the way the benches were arranged, and my father's bench was in front of mine, so he'd walk around at the end of the day, and he goes, what are you doing, goddammit? <laughs> so, I... You know, I usually turn around and say, well, I'm working on this, I'm working on that, and I'm putting this together for this order and what have you. Instead, this day, I just picked the piece up, I smiled, and I held it in my hand, right? And he grabs it out of my hand. I said, oh, boy, now it's going to be me. Right, this is going to be me. And he looks at it, he goes, you know, I don't do that kind of work, but it's very good. <laughs> Keep going. Once every 40 years. <laughs> yeah. So that's where the monkeys came from. And I've probably produced 50, 100 monkeys, all different characters. That must have been since huge then. to get your dad's approval. Yeah. yeah. And it was, and that's huge. It was huge. I mean, that that's as far as he... Uh, one day I made a dot ring that was really, really good dot ring. He, and he took it out of my head. He goes, wow, that's pretty good. Bring it over here. I'll correct it. <laughs> It's a good start, kid. Yeah, I mean, that's you, this is who you're dealing with, man. Yeah. I mean, it's it's yeah. like, um, and and from his perspective, I mean, he's twice my age. You know, he he's looking at something and he's saying, "Oh, it could be better this way, right?" And that's the way he did it. Bring it over here. I'll correct it. <laughs> you know, and, and in a lot of ways, he was a hard ass. But the other side of it is, is that. If you look at the work that I'm producing now and the work that my daughter's producing, it's directly related to the and integrated into the process that came from his work. It's not knockoff because we don't do any mass production and we won't copy his work. But it, the influence on that is definitely clearly there. And, and we wouldn't have been able to do that if he hadn't had, in, on some level and in some way, been able to convey what he was trying to do to for us. Mm -hmm. uh, and i give you one more example of that. And you'll see this. Uh, like, we have several celebrities come in here, by, particularly Carlos Santana loves, oh, I got an order for him right now. He loves our work. In fact, he grew up over the hill from me. <laughs> right? So this is an amazing period of time. Anyway, 
he says, wow, your work is so different than, than um, all the other jewelers I know. I said, well, you know what the reason for that is, Carlos? And he says, well, it looks like it's got, it's got more depth. I said, it's right, it's layers. There isn't two pieces of the, these pieces that are on the same level. They're all floating, it's sculptural. And where that comes from is where my father, and this goes back to the, the unfinished story of the 30s. So what happened was my father was trained, like most of the artists of that era, um, that the most beautiful form in nature was the egg. If you're doing sculpture, you're doing pieces that, and, and it works, and your pieces have to work from all sides of the egg. And you can see it in this, you can see it in, in, in Rockoff, you can see it in, in Costa Diva, you can see it in, in the sculptural pieces. And, and, and the artists of that period, you can see it in Diego's work, you can see it in, in Frida's work, where they make these beautiful eyebrows and beautiful cheekbones, and they were all following this form, this idea, Sagueros and Posada, all of the, those people, the muralists of that era, were the Koi Tower murals, uh, Anatov, and all these guys were following this idea of the egg. And it was really, really ingrained into art students. This is what you're after, this form. You see it in the Emperor Norton, even his chest. Yeah. It follows the it follows that concept. Yeah. But he round, wound up running into all these amazing artists that were fleeing another group of fascists out of Germany. And he formed this thing, and it's 100 years old now. They restored it after the fascists were overthrown, called the Bauhaus. And the Bauhaus artists were an amazing experiment. And this is where modernism was born. See, it's not Art Deco. It's not, it's not, even, it's not even like a lot of, in fact, what happened with the people that were into the egg, including my father, they followed this idea of modernism, which was to simplify things, but also to explore things in a modern way and using modern machines and using modern tools. And to this day, we don't reject computer or computer-generated images. It's just another tool. That's all it is. You just can't be drawn in and sucked into it. But anyway, get back to this. What happened is he met Maholi Naj. He wound up uh, interacting with uh, a studio, a newly, a studio jeweler who was his mentor by the name of Margaret Depata. And Margaret Depata in that period and him got together. My father was still carving these little pieces out of wood. And while he was in the WPA, it wasn't just making bigger sculptures, but making smaller pieces. And one day Margaret said, why don't you wrap some metal around that in a certain way? It'd be a pendant and you could sell it. And my father took to it and he began to develop himself as a sculptural jeweler. And involved in that, in, in that period, he discovered some very interesting things. One is that the form of the egg was really important, so the form was still important. But where the voyage of discovery was, where the creativity laid, was when you cut into the egg. All right? Which a lot of times is very frustrating sometimes and, and challenging because now you not only have to get the outside form right and get everything on the outside working together when you cut into it you got to get all the layers working together you know how many pieces I tossed aside on my bench when oh well that one didn't work or I can take a piece of that and put it over here and maybe that'll work but 
That's the idea behind the dots, why we have dots all over the place. The idea of the dots is you're looking into a window in space. All the dots are the same size. They're just at different distances. Okay, so now you have a spatical reality where you're looking, looking into this window out there. His shadow box work, where he cut into these pieces and created shadow boxes, right? And that was taught to me, where the monkeys, you see the monkeys, they the got real faces. Yeah. They've got real feeling coming out of them because you can do that when you stop operating in a two-dimensional way. You start operating in a three-dimensional way. You start thinking about what's inside, not just what's outside, right? That is one of the hallmarks of our work. Period. And it goes into my daughter's work. If you look down here, where she takes and creates flowers, she creates creates depth in those pieces, right? That's her pod, right? And that's, you see it in my daughter's work as well as my work as well as my father's work. And that is the continuum. It's not a copy of any piece. It is a development of design concepts mm -hmm. that are based upon layers and depth. And, and the exploration of form and design in those layers and depth as they relate to what you're looking at. It's almost like theme and variation, right? Yeah, the theme yeah. permeates through yeah. your, your family's work, but you each have your own everything. variation. Even, even those flat sculptures up there, I float them from the wall, right? right? Nothing is flat. Nothing lays flat, right? It has to have some kind of life to it that gives it depth. And so I've continued that that exploration with with a, almost a vengeance in in relationship to I won't produce anything that doesn't have sculptural three dimensional um, um, value mm -hmm. in it, um, and that's why collectors come from everywhere. The people that were just in here, right? He comes from back east. I have collectors at University of Michigan. I have people in 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 um, Japan, I have people coming from Europe, all over Europe, have, to buy the work. It's because you don't see it everywhere. People don't do this, right? One of the reasons they don't do this to a, to a large degree, they're doing it more. Some of them are doing it more. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's hard work. It really is art work. That was Danny Macchiarini. Join us again next week when we'll hear from Muttville founder and CEO Sherry Franklin. Music for the podcast is by Otis McDonald. Film photography is by Michelle Kilfeather. Find the nearly 90 episodes we've done over on our website, storiedsf.com. While you're there, please help support this project by going to our store page and checking out the various pledge levels. We really appreciate it. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to stay current on everything we do. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. If you have ideas of who should be on the podcast, our email is storiedsf at gmail.com. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>